everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and this is your co-host, Kevin Toffel. And today we have a great show for you. We're going to talk about the merger of Qualcomm and NXP. We're going to talk about Microsoft's new security program and security in general. We're going to talk about my brief visit to the beta store in Palo Alto. I've got some more low-power, wide-area network news for you. And we've got Brian Knopf, who is the chief security researcher at Newstar, who is the second of my two, oh my gosh, there's an IoT botnet out there. What do we do? So (laughs) he's going to talk a little bit about that. But first, a message from our sponsor. Everyone's favorite phrase, the Internet of Things, stem from discussions involving ultra-high frequency, or UHF, RFID. UHF has powered the industrial IoT for a decade, but what else do you know about UHF? If you've ever participated in a marathon, you probably had a UHF label on your race bib. UHF RFID labels and tags typically have a read range of well over 5 meters, and specialty tags can even detect moisture, all without batteries. Ready to kick off your own project? The e-commerce team at AtlasRFIDStore.com has partnered with over 25 manufacturers and will help you choose the best UHF readers, antennas, and tags for your project. Connect the enterprise by visiting www.AtlasRFIDStore.com and use coupon code IOTPODCAST for $50 off shipping. Alrighty, Kevin, we are back to the show. Let's talk about the big deal in the space, Qualcomm. Yeah, it is a big deal. I mean, most people know Qualcomm for their modems and uh, SOCs that are in most mobile devices these days. NXP, I actually remember them, or my first experience was using NXP chips inside a phone for NFC, if I recall correctly. And Qualcomm said, hey, we want some of that goodness that you have NXP. They are buying them. It looks like it's a $39 billion deal. It's the second largest tech deal followed or preceded. Are you followed or preceded? Only by Dell EMC, which was 60 some odd billion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Qualcomm here. So there's a couple really cool things that I think are happening with this deal. One, is Qualcomm gets NXP's car stuff. Everyone's really focused on that. And and Mm -hmm. it's smart to be focused on it. Uh, We're talking about seeing like, I think it's like $1,100 worth of sensors in cars. So Qualcomm getting a piece of that action is going to be great because they've been focused on kind of the ADAS systems, so the autonomous driving systems recently. Uh, But not all the sensors, like in your tire pressure and... there's there's sensors everywhere, like in your mm-hmm. steering wheel, your brakes, etc. Uh, they got a little bit of this when they bought CSR, actually, but not much. And so this really completes that package. The other thing that's really exciting about Qualcomm buying an XP is now they have a microcontroller business. And the Internet of Things is all about microcontrollers. These are the really tiny semiconductors. They're in your wearables. They're in... Where, where else are they? I mean, they're, they're everywhere. They're basically anything that isn't the big fat, the ARM Cortex processors that are inside your phone that Qualcomm's been working with for, you know, I don't know, decades, years. So these are, these are the smaller, lower powered ones that, you know, 32 bit, 8 bit, 16 bit, whatever. Correct me if I'm wrong. Qualcomm does not actually physically fabricate its chips. It outsources that, but NXP does manufacture chips. Oh, that's a hard question, Kevin. Oh, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> no. 
<laughs> no, NXP does. Sorry, it's actually not a hard question. I just had to think. So Qualcomm is fabulous. NXP does has some manufacturing. I don't know if it manufactures all of its chips. Mm-hmm. So they do have manufacturing. They also, it's worth noting for those of you guys who remember, they bought Freescale about a year ago, which combined their two, they got more car parts. They got some, actually, with the Freescale assets, there's some cellular network radio kind of chips that are like the chips that operate cellular networks, like the network backend. Mm -hmm. So they got some of the network processors, which will be good for Qualcomm because then maybe you've got this whole like, ta-da, end-to-end network stack because people in the industry love saying the words end-to-end and really mean (laughs) So all in all, good deal. Qualcomm was always going to be challenged by the internet of things because it was such a wide customer base. Suddenly, this company that literally Qualcomm has dealt with for most of its life, it's dealt with like the big carriers and the big cell phone makers. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And it's a very different sales organization to support sub 100 customers than to support everybody who wants to buy a chip for the Internet of Things. So this will help them there, too, from a business perspective. And I don't know. I have got nothing else to say about this. What about you, Kevin? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, um, a little surprise. NXP actually had more employees than Qualcomm, which I did not realize until reading about this deal. Oh yeah. Again, that's the that's the difference in sales <laughs> difference in sales organizations. Plus, yeah. they have they have a lot more SKUs, like a lot more oh, chips. Yeah. I mean, NXP is it is big. It's not fancy, but it is big. Yep. All right. So massive chip consolidation deal there. Very exciting. Now we should talk about security. NXP, Qualcomm, or actually, I was about to say NXP, I know, offers end-to-end security. But this is not that type of security. This is Microsoft creating an IoT security audit program for, it looks like it's, it's cloud customers, but it also talks about working with other standards groups. So maybe we're going to have it work on devices that are hosted in other clouds as long as they eventually talk to Azure. Yeah, I was just going to say, at first, I thought this was Azure specific, but uh, Microsoft is going to be working with the Industrial Internet Consortium to assist with new IoT protocols for the industry and best practices. So it doesn't seem specific to Azure IoT efforts for Microsoft. It's just the name. So the name again, because... Who doesn't love a good name? This is not a good name. It's Security Program for Azure IoT. Yeah. Highly specific and very descriptive, but, you know, I'm not like, this probably isn't something you're going to call up in order. But here's why it matters. (laughs) It matters because... One security audit, please. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Add to cart. (laughs) I love it. Okay. So it matters because... After the Mirai botnet drama of yes. October 21st, so this was this was a couple weeks ago when people were suddenly like, holy cow, we have a lot of connected things that are utterly unsecure. Insecure? Unsecured. They're not Both. secured. Both. <laughs> Both. <laughs> so that has renewed the conversation about this. And now people in the industry have been talking about this for years. They're like, when are people going to realize this? So we may be there and people may be willing to pay for security. But the challenge is because there are so many moving parts, you've got 
the chips you put in devices like the microcontrollers and you've got the radios and then you've got maybe the connection to a gateway in a house in a factory and then the gateway might connect to the cloud and then you've got the cloud back end like is your database secure so th- there's a lot of stuff software oh, firmware i mean it's a mess yeah. so everyone has been saying someone should really come up with some sort of unified like security service and people might pay for it on the enterprise side, that's kind of what it looks like Microsoft has done. We'll have to wait and see, but the working with the IIC, the Industrial Internet Consortium, is pretty good. And Microsoft being Microsoft, I really do think they know what they're talking about here and they're aware of the challenges. So that'll be great. It's one of the first vendors to offer something like this. And then I'm very curious to see what happens, though, on the consumer side, because that's where I think... A lot of other kind of, a lot of these products are SMB that were attacked as part of the Mirai botnet were actually SMBs and medium-sized mm-hmm. businesses. And Microsoft makes a point of saying that they will work with those companies. So yay for them. But on the consumer side, people are really worried. And I'm curious who might solve that problem. I wonder. It's been a question we've had for a long time. So we are seeing that maybe carrier, I still think that carriers could, like ISPs could do it. So I think that's a really good option. I also think that maybe if you're a hub vendor, like SmartThings or Wink or, I don't know, Verilite, I mean, there's there's a bunch of hubs out there, Nexia, maybe one of those companies will be able to offer like a, a security audit for the home as an add-on service. Again, add to cart. Yeah. Click. Pay. So I'd be curious. Would you guys be willing to pay for that? Would you think it's worthwhile? Especially without any real security standards so far. That's, yeah, see, that's the tricky part. And as you said, with all of the moving parts, you know, it's frustrating. I mean, just getting things set up to begin with. We've talked about this, you know, ad nauseum before. Just setting things up as a consumer is an exercise in futility most often. Actually understanding and securing everything you're putting into place, putting the burden on the consumer is really tough. It's just, it's just a challenge, you know. It is. And I should actually say something. So a couple shows ago, I talked about creating two networks for my IoT stuff. I'm still planning on doing that. And you guys have been awesome about sending me suggestions. I have been waiting for me to be in my house and able to tear down my network for longer than like a day and a half. So that's coming in two weeks. So stay tuned for that. And already I realized that This may be an impossible thing to do because there's a lot of functionality that I want from my phone, but my phone Mm -hmm. can't be on that network. Right. So I'm trying to to work my way around this by putting things on a tablet and just maybe giving up on geofencing, which wouldn't be the end of the world. No, that wouldn't be the end of the world. I mean, I I would take a, a more secure approach as opposed to a more convenient one if I could. And, you know, moving away from the phone, I totally understand that. And that is the challenge. So maybe it becomes a totally a, a voice activated system for you. That's kind of what I'm thinking. I'm also, mm-hmm. there's also the option of doing something with if this and that and letting, instead of my phone going on the network, maybe doing something via the GPS on my phone in my house radius with if this and that and that triggering me being home to one device, like the Nest thermostat that controls a lot of things. I don't know. I might have to have a hub that works with if this and that, though, which would mean I'm back to smart things. 
it's going to be tricky no matter what. Um, there will be compromises. Yeah, unfortunately. All right. So that's my little addendum because you guys have been so awesome sending me ideas and thoughts. I wanted to thank you for it and tell you where that was. In my travels, though, I have visited some very exciting places, not just conferences. I went last <laughs> week to the Beta Store in Palo Alto. Mm, I'm jealous. It's exciting. So anyone looking for this, it's beta with a B8TA, just so you know, in case you're looking. And this store is right now the only one of its kind. It's They're launching one in Seattle and Santa Monica by the end of this year. But what it is, is a place where device makers pay to get into the store and the company basically shows you the devices in the store. They demo the products for you. There's video demos everywhere. There were probably, I'm going to estimate, and I'm probably estimating wrong, maybe 50 devices in there. And there were things like a wide array of VR headsets, some crazy helmet type things, <laughs> a lot of wearables, mm -hmm. a whole counter of smart devices so like the beyond light bulbs yeah it's the beyond uh bulbs with security home protection yes the mm -hmm. beyond bulbs the euro routers they demo they had a, a prototype version of the luma router actually um, mm -hmm. they had the wink relay and guys in this store the wink relay was 70 dollars not what? i know so apparently in that store some things get differential pricing as vendors want to try things out because people who show there, basically, they get to control their demo units and pricing and they set all that and they can set it in real time if they want. And it's pretty cool. So I almost bought two wink relays, but I didn't because my husband decided that he did not want those in the house. And because they were too fat for me to bring home in my suitcase. Oh, mm, Bummer. Bummer. Well, the boxes were too fat. Though. Yeah, yeah. The, the relays are not that bad at all. So, I'm, I'm actually looking at all the products that they have on, on the site, and there's a wide range. I mean, there's a lot of consumer-y fun things, you know, if you wanted to play with the BB-8 droid by Sphero. Oh, yeah, there were a lot of toys. Yeah, toys. Cool. Toys. Well, so actual <laughs> toys for kids, not just toys right. for us. There are, well, yeah, the whole store is full of toys. Define kids. Yes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> they had one of my favorites, which is Cubelets. I love those things. They're like these little modular robots. They're probably not for kids, but they're super fun. If you have a nerdy friend, you should buy them a Cubelet. All my friends are nerdy. What are you saying? Well, if you have a nerdy <laughs> friend that you like a lot, because these things oh. are expensive. So I was in love with this store. If you are in Palo Alto or before the end of this year when they open in Seattle and Santa Monica, I recommend popping by because it was a really fun place. And all the people who live in Palo Alto, you're like, yeah, yeah, we've been. It's fun. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Been there, done we got, that. We got lots of those cool places here. Yeah. yeah. Sadness. Okay. So I was going to talk about IoT and blockchain because Harriet hmm. Green wrote an essay over Harriet Green, who is the head of the Internet of Things efforts at IBM, did an essay over at VentureBeat explaining how the blockchain was going to change IoT. In blockchain, you guys... It's not just the back end of a cryptocurrency. It's basically a distributed ledger system. And IBM has been flogging blockchain as a potential for the Internet of Things for years, like two or three. And the interesting thing about it is, is because it's distributed, what you can do is you can have your devices create a network. And instead of everything being hosted back in the cloud, things can be hosted on like an individual device network. So there are companies like Filament that are trying to do this for rural areas. 
IBM seems to they were they were showing off a blockchain parking meter hmm. concept at the ARM tech show. And it seems instead of doing everything kind of locally and reaping the economics of not having to support a cloud infrastructure for 10 years for a device that may not you really require it. But it, it, the ARM thing, the parking meter example actually did go back to Bluemix. So IBM may be now being like, eh, let's have a distributed ledger and let's send it to the cloud, like and host all the data there. But the interesting thing about it is with the standard, all the sensors in the parking lot can kind of know the status of each other and communicate that not just to the parking lot, you know, owner, but also mm-hmm. to a billing system and even to a city if the city wanted to, you know, grab the information and do something with it for like events. Um, and I, I just thought it was kind of a neat demo. I'm not hearing a lot about blockchain for IoT outside of IBM. Hmm. So I don't really know where this is at. Don't know. I haven't heard a ton about it either. It was um, hot like two years ago. Yeah, but since then it just kind of has cooled off or we just haven't heard. I don't, I don't know what's going on. I mean, it it's always been a, a question. It's like, is it replacing the cloud? Is it supplementing the cloud? What's the real benefit here? Aside from, a you know, basically a public ledger of every single transaction between devices and, and such, every single bit of data can theoretically be traced back and viewed. But I haven't seen anybody demonstrate how they're going to use it to really show a benefit yet. For example, what IBM showed off, you had mentioned the, the parking meter. What if they did the same thing without using blockchain? What's the benefit? Did they illustrate that? I don't know that they did. I mean, obviously, but... Not as much. Yeah. So that's And that's probably why we're not hearing that much about it's, it. I know that it is. it does reduce costs. Okay. And for financial transactions, it can provide an immediacy that is just unprecedented. Yes, correct. So... But with IoT, we have things that are already relatively immediate, relatively mm-hmm. immediate. That is, I am making up, <laughs> making up concepts here. Near real time. Near real time. So I don't know. I'm going to keep an eye on it because I'm obsessed with like the potential here, but I'm still like, don't get too sucked in by the hype, you guys, because so far it's really only IBM that's pushing this and showing off stuff. And they've been doing this for years. Other related stuff. Actually, not at all related stuff. We've got, I was like, no, this is low power nope. wide area networks. Very different. Very different. So don't be dismayed by the fact that I just strung a whole bunch of words together that may not make sense. There's going to be some more acronyms coming for this one. But what is happening? These are networks like LoRa, like the cellular networks, CAT M1. So basically, <laughs> these are really low power, like I said, networks like usually they communicate at less than one megabit per second of bandwidth in the case of, you know, and they do it over a huge distance. And the idea is you connect sensors to these because they don't require a lot of power. So you don't have to change your batteries and your sensors for a while. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of cheap and easy way to like deploy and send like state data back and forth. So it's 78 degrees. I'm on, I'm off. That kind of information. Yeah, small amounts of data sent often. So we are talking about this because, oh, you guys are going to love it. I found a story about Singapore creating their first live NB-IoT trial. And I was like, NB-IoT? What the heck is that? And I discovered, you guys, that NB-IoT is a cellular standard. So by that, I mean it's a 3GPP standard. 
I told you there was going to be a lot of acronyms here. Sorry mm-hmm. about that. So it's a cellular standard. It competes with, oh, I'm going to mess it up again, CAT M1. M1. <laughs> so, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because Verizon in the U.S. is doing a CAT M1 network. So you're going to hear about it, and it's going to compete with some of the other networks out there, like Comcast just invested in a LoRa network. So when you hear CAT M1 or NBIoT, think that competes with LoRa networks or Sigfox. All these are kind of these low-power, wide-area networks. So what's happening here is Singapore, Australia, and Korean telcos are trialing NBIoT. What's also worth noting is that Singapore and Korea both have LoRa networks that they're working on too. So it's unclear to me if the carriers think that LoRa and these cellular standards would be compatible, and they might be. Um, running them together. Verizon is not investing in LoRa. Uh, the carriers here in the U.S. are like, eh, not so much. So worth noting, just to, if you're, if you're a network nerd, you can be like, oh my gosh, more acronyms, more fun, uh, more, more standards, options. more networks. Ay, 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 ay. Finally, if you have $300 to spend, NetAtmo has an outdoor camera just for you. Hmm. Hmm. So this is part of the just rush of outdoor cameras. We've got the Canary Flex. We've got the Ring stick-up cam. We've got the Nest Outdoor. Mm -hmm. I I forget exactly what it's called. I think that's right, though. These descriptive names, they really cause problems. All right. So all of those cameras, they all range at about $200, maybe $250. I'm trying to think about the Canary Flex. But the NetAtmo is $300. And this is a camera... Outdoor camera plus security light. So the camera is beneath this big LED light. You install it outside by installing it where a security light had been. So it gets power that way. So there's a little bit of wiring involved. The reason it costs so much, according to NetAtmo, is because they don't actually store your stuff to the cloud. And so there's no subscription. So they're arguing that over a year, their product is actually about the same which for the Nest Outdoor, I guess it's $10 a month. So mm. in about a year, you make that up because you're storing on a internal micro SD card. So you can store on an internal micro SD card, which is what 90% of people will probably do. The others mm-hmm. can put it onto an internal NAS or FTP server, mm-hmm. um, or you can send it to Dropbox. They actually just made that really easy. This mm. is also integrated with if this and that. And what I like about NetAtmos stuff, other than the privacy features, is that it's got really interesting image recognition technology. So it can tell if it's a dog, if it's a car, if it's all these mm-hmm. other things. And it won't record that stuff if you don't want it to. If you want it cuts to. out the noise. I like that. Yes. So Nest also does that. Canary is working on that. I don't know how effective it is. So and the Nest stuff actually looks pretty good at it. So basically this is up to you. If you're privacy conscious, I would say this is a good product. If you are comfortable with Nest and you have a bunch of Nest stuff, maybe you don't spend an extra $100 on the NetAtmo presence. There you have it. New devices available for you. And now stay tuned for a message from our sponsor and our guest this week, who is Brian Knopf, the head of security research at Newstar. And he's talking about securing the internet of things that was just super fun to say (laughs) all right thank you so much stay tuned 
Hey, this is Stacy. I am breaking into this week's Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Arm, and I have Depesh Patel. He is Arm's EVP of Incubation Businesses. Depesh, we were speaking earlier about security being the biggest problem facing the Internet of Things. Arm has done a lot of work with TrustZone on its chips, its crypto cell technology, and you guys recently launched another architecture that will help secure even smaller devices. But you guys also did something really significant. You launched a cloud service. Can you talk about why that happened? As you know, the biggest challenge facing us in connected devices is how do we make sure that the devices are secure and managed through their life cycle? Let me explain what I mean by managed first, and then I'll talk about how the cloud offering that we have launched helps in that journey. So as a device is first installed, in a environment, it has a it needs to be onboarded and then it needs to be managed through its life cycle. And why is um, device management important? Uh, one of the biggest issues with devices is that the software that one has written for those devices tends to evolve over time. And you might have issues with versions of software that you want to fix. Some of these issues will lead to security holes in the devices. And in order for us to manage these devices, through the life cycle, we need to be able to have those devices connected to a cloud service and be able to deploy different software upgrade to those devices. As part of that deployment, this is where you bring in the brand new Embed Cloud offering? Absolutely. And that's what Embed Cloud is designed to do. So it's designed to take the device through a journey from the first time it's connected through to the time where we can actively manage the devices in the field. With Embed Cloud and Embed OS, you guys are really branching out from silicon IP. Can you talk about the overall strategy for ARM and why it's doing this? As we started looking at IoT, it became clear to us that the for IoT to really scale and for IoT to really become mainstream, we were going to have to do something about the software that ran on devices. At the moment, the software that runs on devices is quite fragmented. And while that's okay when the volumes are low, in order to scale to a large-scale number of devices, we felt that a platform OS like the one we were doing with Embed OS was necessary. And that was necessary because we think a lot of the common problems around device software needed to be solved in one hit, and then everybody could take advantage of that and spend their time and effort on creating additional applications that ran on that software. Depesh, thank you. I can't wait to see what happens. Where can we go to find out more? The best place to go and learn more about this is embed.com. That's the letter M followed by bed, B-E-D.com. You can learn a lot more about Embed Cloud, Embed OS, whether you're a developer, whether you are a device manufacturer, or whether you're looking to manage devices that are about to be deployed and in the field. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Brian Knopf, who is the Director of Security Research for IoT at Newstar. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. So you are here because you have spent years in an industry that feels like it's only a few years old. You've actually spent years doing security research for companies like Belkin and Wink. And then you worked with Josh Corman over at I Am The Cavalry, helping to create some frameworks for connected devices, for securing connected devices. 
So I'm really excited to have you on this show. Well, let's get started. So right now we're in kind of what feels like a turning point for conversations about security and the internet of things. We've gone from fears about like hacking individual devices to all of a sudden we've had these major distributed denial of service attacks. The most recent one happened on Friday and basically took down a couple, actually it didn't take down a couple of websites, but it affected websites on the East coast. And I would love to get your take on kind of, did you expect this to be the hallmark event or this type of attack to be the hallmark event that got people talking about securing IOT? Were we expecting, you know, this kind of attack or distributed denial of service? Not necessarily distributed denial of service, but we were expecting these kind of attacks to be coming from IoT devices because the security has really been lacking for such a long time. And the sheer number of these devices out on the market, Gartner says there's 5.5 million devices per day that are, that are put on the internet. That's a lot of devices with very little security that are just ripe for being used for attacks. Okay. And when you said these kinds of attacks, what kind of attacks are you talking about? Well, so this is a very different type of attack than what we've seen with a normal you know, distributed denial of service. Those typically are me sending you a message to your computer or your device, and then it sends a request to somewhere that I've spoofed. And what's really different about this kind of attack that we saw on Friday is they used what's called the Mirai botnet. And that's a a set of IoT devices that they've captured. But instead of sending the request to that device and making it sort of point there, they compromised all these devices directly. So they loaded malware on all these devices. And once these devices get infected, they actually start searching for other devices. And there's a huge number of credentials that are stored in this code. And so it's looking for... Uh, what we call NVRs, network video recorders, which is kind of like a DVR, but uh, for you know IP-connected cameras, the cameras themselves, and then a small percentage, about 4%, were actually routers. So all these devices with a lot of power, very little security, were used to basically load this attack against Dyn, um, which is a dynamic DNS provider. And all the sites that use Dyn were unable to resolve their uh, IP addresses to host names. So what does that mean for consumer? When you were trying to go to Twitter and other sites, all of a sudden those sites become unavailable. Got it. And this exploited a specific port that is used for a certain type of traffic. So I'm going to nerd out for a minute here, and we're going to talk about the whole Telnet aspect of it and why that's actually like a good thing. Because Well, that's not so much the concern. I mean, the problem with Telnet is Telnet is wide open. And Telnet, so port 23, it's been around for a long time. In a lot of places, it's been replaced with a much more secure thing called SSH. But the problem is that a lot of these devices, when they're manufactured, they turn on Telnet for a number of reasons. A lot of times they are used to Telnet into the box. So it's a terminal window, uh, you know, for those who remember the old black and white windows. And once you get a Telnet session, you can actually look at settings. And so manufacturers use this off the assembly line to put things like the serial number, set the MAC address, set the IP address, so they can actually program these devices. Unfortunately, that means that a lot of times those devices never have Telnet turned off. You know, if you think of the idea of secure by default, if 90% of the consumers aren't going to use that feature, it shouldn't be on. 
let the 10% that need it actually turn on Telnet and use it. The other problem here, which is more concerning, is the password or the, the credentials for Telnet. The issue with a lot of these devices from Mirai, in fact, to all these devices, is they were using default credentials, which means these are published credentials that are in the user guides and documented on the web for these devices. And they're weak credentials, things like all zeros or admin admin. And so they're very easy to guess. And so what Mirai does is it scans for devices, and there's a whole list of credentials, and they're all default credentials. And once it gets a connection to Telnet, it loads up malware and then makes that device start searching out other devices. The problem you have here is if a user goes into the web interface, right, just like they're configuring a router and they change the password, in many of these cases, it does not change the Telnet password. In some cases, that Telnet password is hard-coded, which means you as the user cannot change it. Got it, which is why some of the, or one of the vendors at least so far, has recalled some of their devices. And that's a huge step that we shouldn't ignore. I mean, to have a vendor finally recognize that they have put such uh, improper security into the device that they need to recall it because they can't actually fix it, that's a big deal. And that particular vendor... The problem is they are a white label vendor, which means they're not selling their DVRs or their NVRs under their name. They're selling it to other manufacturers. So that same NVR gets sold to 10 or 15 different manufacturers who then put their sticker on it and sell it with their cameras. Does that mean I, as a consumer, have no idea if I've got one of these? Or does that mean those vendors that are the actual brands need to do a recall? Well... I think, one, they'll coordinate through the vendors that they work with. But two, as a consumer, you can look at the Mirai list if you just Google for Mirai botnet. There's a list of the devices and manufacturers that are affected. Yes, that is true. And what what if one of my devices is on this list? What do I do? This is really where choice as a consumer comes in. In many of the cases, you can try and change the password, look up the user manual to see if the Telnet password or the interface password can be changed. And if it can't, then I would consider either removing that device and buying a replacement or contacting the manufacturer for a replacement. Now, many of the manufacturers have said they will be doing a software update to change these. Whether that means they're going to do another default password that someone can figure out, not sure. But if they just change the password to something else, once people figure out that password, unless every customer is changing their password to a unique one, it's just going to be another way to attack. So the manufacturer needs to change their passwords and enable consumers to change their passwords. Actually, they just need to enable consumers to change their passwords, and then consumers actually have to do it. Exactly. Got it. How likely is that? Well, I would say normally not very likely for a couple of reasons. One, you're assuming that the manufacturers actually have a contact list of everyone who owns that device. So unless you register your device with an account, which some, some of these have and some don't, they don't have a way to contact everyone. Even if they do, it requires the user to actually do the interaction themselves. So the manufacturer will come up with a new update, but they don't push it out. It's pulled down by the consumer. I mean, this is part of the problem with IoT. We're asking average consumers to become IT patching departments. You know, if you think of all the devices in your house that may be connected, 
Now you have to go look for updates for each one of those and make sure you update them on a regular basis. Well, this seems like a good time to talk about like things that companies can do to design security into their devices. Because a lot of my devices actually force updates to me. And so patching for me is just, I open an app and it's like, hey, firmware update, do it. And I'm like, doo doo. Or in some cases, it's like, boom, we updated your software last night. Enjoy. I guess, doesn't this feel like something the vendors should be kind of thinking about when they're designing? I mean, isn't it possible to make this easier for consumers? It's absolutely possible to make it easier for consumers. Unfortunately, security is one of the last things it's thought of. I mean, if you think of like a Kickstarter or a Indiegogo type campaign, you're trying to get funding. And then you're building a team and you've got to build a mobile app and you've got to build the web interface and the actual product and the software. So the NVRs are being provided in many of these cases by a a white label manufacturer. But there's a lot of kickstart projects for cameras, something that's unique, where they may have to build the software for it or the firmware for it, or they get part of the firmware from the manufacturer, but they're not fully thinking about security. From the manufacturer standpoint, the actual white label manufacturer, they don't really think of the software layer so much as the firmware. And they provide that to whoever the eventual manufacturer who's going to put their name on it. So if there's not a you know starting approach of thinking about how you, you want to secure the product, it's too late once you get the device already you know down to the consumer. And the last problem I see is the tools that are used to, as I talked about before, that are used to verify the product off the assembly line. A lot of times, the actual vulnerabilities are in those tools themselves. And again, they're used to do things like verify that the IP address is set correctly, the serial number, and the MAC address. But those tools also have things like root shell access or leave telnet open. And the manufacturers do this for convenience. They don't think like attackers. So the manufacturer doesn't know it's there. The what we call the original development manufacturer, the person who makes it, doesn't care that it's there because it's convenient for them. And most consumers wouldn't know to check for those things or even how to check for those things. And so the solution, if I'm a consumer and I want to buy products that are not going to become part of a botnet or are less likely to be compromised in other ways, what should I look for? What should I do? So I think the easiest thing for consumers to do is look up the manufacturer website and see if they have a security link. And that's going to tell you a couple things. One, whether or not the company actually takes security seriously. Two, whether they have a bug bounty program or a way to submit information if there is a problem. And those things alone tell you that they actually care about security. If there's no way to get to the manufacturer to inform them about a a security issue, then if a researcher finds a vulnerability, they're not going to have a way to get to the manufacturer, and it probably means the manufacturer doesn't care. Man, this is scary. There's a lot of opportunity for things to go wrong here, and it feels like not a lot of ways to fix it after the fact. So given that, what is your stance on, like, what should we be doing? Should we, should the government get involved and be more, you know, stick, less carrot? Should, I don't know, consumers just give up, stop buying the stuff? Well, I think what consumers really should be doing is using their buying power to incentivize the manufacturers who do care about security. There are manufacturers out there that 
run bug bounty programs, that have security programs, that are constantly looking to improve the security of their devices. All right. I will look. So what about the government? The interesting thing about the government is whether they have the power to actually go after these companies. Over the past couple of years, there have been some actions taken by the FTC against companies that aren't implementing what we consider basic minimum standards. They've happened against camera companies. They've happened against router companies. Unfortunately, there are larger companies with very large legal teams that have fought back and won, even when they've violated what anyone in the security industry would consider a basic minimum. And an example would be a router with WEP. And WEP is a standard that has been, for many years, advised not to be used any longer. And there was a router manufacturer, uh, an ISP, who was shipping devices with WEP on as default. And the FTC went after them and unfortunately lost because the lawyers of this company were substantial. Whereas most of the companies like that, that the FTC went after, ended up paying fines for it and having to fix their, their devices. So I think it's, that's one way to do it. I just don't see right now that the FTC necessarily has the power they need to be able to enforce this. So maybe this is where we look at other methods. There's an effort for something called CyberUL. If people are familiar with the Underwriters Laboratory, this would be a cyber version of it that would look at vulnerabilities. There's an effort that I'm working on with I Am The Cavalry that is doing something similar to ones that the Cavalry has already released. It's a five-star rating for IoT devices. And similar to what you would see with a car, the consumers don't necessarily need to know all the tests that are behind it, but that a five-star would be much better than a three-star. And that program would be run by the government, by companies? We wouldn't necessarily want the government to run it, probably more like an independent company. But think of it as a framework for researchers to use so that they can talk about devices in a common language. Every researcher you know, goes to look at a device and has sort of different ways of looking at it, judging how good that product is compared to other cameras or compared to other IoT devices. If we had a common framework, a way to rate these devices for how they handled physical security, how they handled network communication, how they handled privacy, how they handled safety. I feel like we have talked about a lot of things. I would love to know from your perspective, you've given me some good tips about where to go and how to like judge devices before I've bought them. The ones I have now... Do you have any advice for people who have a collection of connected devices, and maybe they're fine for now? How should I be kind of thinking about protecting myself going forward? I think as I talked before, looking at the manufacturer site, seeing if they're serious about security, there are a number of DEF CON presentations that have been done on IoT devices. They're all on YouTube. And unfortunately, a lot of those manufacturers don't care or have never followed up to fix the issues. And these are things like being able to control your home and then having someone who can just connect to that device, load their own software on it, and really do whatever they want. Many of these devices are used for managing remote homes, like rental homes. In the past, there has been problems with companies like Mikasa Verde. Uh, they have a device that's a gateway for your home. And it has very little security. Uh, there's a lot of YouTube videos explaining how to hack into them. And so as a consumer, you have to make a choice on, 
does the benefit you're getting from that device outweigh the risks of someone using that device to unlock your home? There are manufacturers, as I said, that do care about security. You know, if you look at Google, they've spent a lot of time on security. Now, whether you have a problem with the way they handle privacy is a different story, but they do spend a lot of time on the security of their devices. Got it. Do you want to recommend any devices that are highly secure for us? There are a lot of devices I like. Um, There's companies that I feel take a lot of care in their approach to security. But because I work on bug bounties for these devices, I have to be very careful what I say. I will say publicly that, you know, I like the products that Canary has done. I think they take a very serious approach to security. I believe the same with Wink. I feel like it's a great platform to bring a lot of your IoT devices together, especially from the consumer standpoint. Google has done a lot in the security space. Whether you have an issue, again, about their privacy, their products tend to be very solid from a security perspective. Those are the three that come to mind. I actually have about 100 IoT devices in my lab at home uh, that I work on on a daily basis. And that means lots of applications and looking at lots of traffic to see how those devices work. Is that your home or is that your lab that is also at your home? My home is actually a giant lab. Everything in my home is connected from my swimming pool to my thermostat to my door locks. Now, there are some extra protections like firewalls and things put in place in front of it because I'm a researcher. But part of my research has to be using these on a daily basis to understand the benefit versus the security trade-off. I love it. I also live in a living lab, so I'm like, oh, one day I shall I shall visit yours. So thank you so much, Brian. Thank you for having me. It's been great to talk to you and I really enjoy talking about IoT and especially security. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again next week on the Internet of Things podcast. And if you don't get enough IoT news from this show, feel free to sign up for my newsletter, Stacy Knows Things, at stacyoniot.com.